Remember our brother Isaiah who saw you and did him in until he knew that you had atoned for his, would atone for his sins. So, Father, we would be done in as well had we not known Jesus. So we thank you for him, and now we pray that you would focus our attention upon him, this one who is the cornerstone of our very lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would enable us to focus our attention upon him and be captivated by you. And in these moments, even as we listen, would be those who would proclaim your excellencies because you're worth listening to and you're worth knowing about. And so, Father, we pray that you would work that in us now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you do, turn to 1 Peter in chapter 2. I want to read verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter in chapter 2, verse 4, please. Hear the word of God. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have Received mercy. This is a, a big picture passage. It, is a, it, 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 it gives us a great look at God and what He's doing in history, most especially in redemptive history. And it gives us a great look, a big look, at who we are as, as His people. Uh, we see, for instance, that it's God who's doing something. What He's doing is He is calling for Himself uh, a people who will proclaim His excellencies, or as some of you may have in your versions, declare His praises. So, so God desires for Himself a people who will declare His praises, who will proclaim His excellencies. And because He desires it, He'll get it. And thus He's building, He's calling for Himself a people who will do just that, who will proclaim His excellencies. And of course, it's God who's doing it. And God is the one who is, is calling us out. Uh, he is the one, the scripture says in verse 1 of First Peter, who has chosen us, called us out, elected us, called us to, to declare his praises, to proclaim his excellencies. He's the very one who has chosen the Lord Jesus. Of course, when we say chosen the Lord Jesus, we realize Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, and, and Jesus volunteered for this duty, but yet it was the Father's plan, and, and, and he sent the Lord Jesus, to be this one who would be the cornerstone, precious, that is the most important building block, the key building block in all of this. The very stone that if it's off just a bit, then nothing else in the building fits. It's the very stone that holds everything together and keeps it square, keeps it right. He's chosen the Lord Jesus to be this very cornerstone. 
sent him. And he's the very one who then has called us, taken us, built us up, each one living stone upon living stone, that we might be built into this spiritual house, this house in which the Spirit of God will dwell in us, corporately, together. He says that we are a royal priesthood, that is, we're a priestly people, a people who has who have access to God, as a priest would have access to God, that's all of us, a royal priesthood, we're a priesthood under the declaration of God himself. So it's a real priesthood, it's true. The king has said that this is who we're to be, this is who we are. We're a holy nation, a people that are set apart from all the other people in the world. We're a chosen race. We're no longer distinguished any longer by our ethnicity. That's not what is significant about us. It's not where we're from, uh, who were our natural parents but rather the fact that we share one thing significant in common that makes us a race together, and that is that we're chosen ones, however mysterious that is, that is now replaces, if you will, our ethnicity as our identity, that we've been chosen by God, we're his treasured possession, we belong to him, we're people who have been called out of darkness, spiritual darkness, where where we could do nothing about it, where we could not know God at all, he's the one who's called us out of that into his marvelous light. We were once not his people, we were once not people who were shown mercy, but now we are his people, we do know his mercy, and all of that, that we might declare his praises. We might proclaim how excellent he is. That's the purpose, you see, for which all of this has taken place. And so we see God at work here, obviously. We see Jesus at work here, and we see the Father and the Son at work here in such a way as to provide for us our whole identity, our whole reason for being. That we might proclaim his excellencies. Such a big picture passage as, as, as this is, I must reminisce just a moment that it was 15 years ago, I think, last Sunday, that I actually preached this sermon, even before I was a part of this congregation. I came July of 1989, see if I wanted to be a part of this thing, but they wanted me to be a part of this thing, and I preached from this text because it's my understanding of who we are really and what we're to be and how we got there as the Church of Jesus Christ. And, you know, as I look around, was there anybody here that Sunday? Besides you. <laughs> Nobody. That's pretty amazing to me. I've either run them all off, but there weren't very many, and that was a long time ago. There were six, I think, in the first service who were there that particular Sunday. But I made the same declaration on that Sunday as I'll make today. And that is that God does, in fact, desire for himself a people who would declare his praises. In fact, because he desires it, he'll get it. Because God is calling together for himself, building together for himself a people who will proclaim his excellencies. And of course, God has every right to do that because he's God. Because there's no other excellencies, there's no one more excellent than God. Whose praises should we sing? Whose excellencies should we proclaim? Our own? Some other human being? 
But if God exists, you see, the purpose then for which we were created was to, is to declare, proclaim how great he is. We were made, really, to be cheerleaders, if you will. You see, when we cheer for our favorite team, well, there's something in us that's really right about that. I mean, that's sort of what we like to do. We like to cheer others on and say, that was really great. And we're our biggest fan for our kids or our spouses, our friends, going through various things. We urge them on. That's good. But you see, what we're really, what's really in us or to be in us is this desire to proclaim, to show forth the excellencies of God. In fact, if you look through the scripture, you can trace this out. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, as Adam and Eve were created, they were created so that they could proclaim how great God is. It doesn't say it that way explicitly in the early chapters of Genesis, but when you read through it, you realize that's what they're to do. Because you see, God had given them everything they needed. He'd given them a beautiful garden, he'd given them his own presence, and he had supplied every need they could possibly have. And they were, when Satan arrived at the door, were to face Satan and declare to Satan, no, you're the liar, God is true. He's the excellent one. He's the one we trust. He's the one who will supply us. We don't need you. You're not speaking the truth. Because you see, God told them, the way you declare my excellencies is to eat from every every tree of the garden, that is, to enjoy me, but to do that save one. There's this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you're not to eat of. And it, it isn't that the fruit itself was full of sin so that if they ate this, they would be permeated with sin. But the point was that God's the only one who gets to define good and evil, not us. And if they would defy him, if they would actually eat of that tree, they would be the ones setting themselves up, saying, oh, we get to define what is good and evil. And in that disobedience, you see, they would then sin. And so that was set up. So Satan enters the garden. And he said, did God really say you shouldn't touch it, you shouldn't eat of it? Did he really say that if you eat of it, you'll surely die? And of course, they ate of it. And in so disobeying at that point in time, they did not declare how excellent God was. In fact, they said God wasn't truthful to us. But Satan is the excellent one. And at that moment in time, sin then entered into them and into the whole race of humanity. But of course we have the great promise, even on the heels of all of that, where God says that that I still will have myself a people who will declare my praises, who will proclaim my excellencies, because a day will come when from the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of this serpent, though his heel will be bruised. And so even then, that first promise. But sin did permeate human beings to such a degree that the scripture tells us soon after that, that the thoughts and inclinations of the heart's of human beings were evil continuously. That they did not desire to glorify, to serve, to obey God, to proclaim how excellent he was with their lives, but rather to follow their own way. And so God was to bring judgment then upon the earth. And he found this one family, this one man particularly, and then saved his family. This one man, Noah, found favor in the eyes of God. And you know the story. God judged the earth through the flood He saved Noah and his family by instructing him to build the ark and and putting himself and various animals in it and so forth and so on. But even as Noah and his family left the ark, still they would sin. There was not a people who would proclaim the excellencies of God. In fact, even after that situation, things went downhill because a tower was being then constructed by the human beings on the earth. 
A tower was being constructed not to declare God's excellencies, but to build a name for themselves. That human beings were saying, look how great we are. We can build a tower that reaches up to the heavens. And God destroyed the tower, judged them, scattered the people. Still, there wasn't the people on the face of the earth who would proclaim the excellencies of God. And God came upon this man named Abraham, who would become Abraham. And to him, he began to make promises. For instance, in Genesis in chapter 12, as God comes to Abraham, he says this, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We get this sense of great blessing upon a group of people. And then in chapter 15 of Genesis The Lord comes to Abraham again in a vision and he says, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God takes Abraham and he says, look at all the stars. You can't even count them. That's the way your descendants will be, your offspring will be. So we get this sense that there's going to be this great number of people who proclaim the excellencies of God, who will declare his praises. And you know the story, Isaac was born, then Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, a famine came to the land. And thus, the sons of Jacob had to move to Egypt where there was food. And you remember that the the, the sons of Jacob and their families grew and grew and grew, so much so that the Egyptians became afraid of of the Hebrews who were there. And so they enslaved them for 400 years. And during that period of time, in an escalating kind of fashion, the people began to cry out to God. And he delivered them, you remember, the whole Moses thing. And he brought them out of Egypt and he took them to a mountain, to Mount Sinai. And there he gave them the law and he made them a nation. And notice what he says to them. This is in Exodus in chapter 19 in verse 5. And listen to see if this doesn't sound familiar, something we just heard Peter from Peter. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so you get this sense, all right? He's building, he's starting this whole thing. He's starting this thing where there will be a people who will be his own. There will be a people who will be a nation, uh, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And you get this sense, the reason for which they're coming together is to, to declare the praises of God, to proclaim his, his excellencies. But we know the story. We know they didn't do that. We know they lived in unfaithfulness and faithfulness and unfaithfulness and faithfulness and so forth and so on throughout their history, primarily unfaithfulness. In fact, even an increasing unfaithfulness in God, not to declare, proclaim his excellencies, but rather to go their own way. In fact, it got to a point where Isaiah the prophet notes this. This is Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 14. Isaiah says, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, 
who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have an agreement. With the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge and in falsehood we have taken shelter. What was happening there was that the Assyrians, the bad guys, the Assyrians were coming against the Israelites. Rather than trust God, the Israelites made a pact with the Egyptians. And so they made a a covenant, as they would say, with death and with Sheol. And the covenant was this. We don't have to worry about that because uh, this other nation, Egypt, will protect us. And so rather than going to God for protection, they went to a foreign nation. They went to another nation and made a covenant there. And so that's taking place here, even amongst these people, that God says, you'll be mine, you'll be my treasured possession, you'll be uh, a kingdom of priests, you'll be a holy nation. But yet they weren't. Verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, notice that this doesn't sound familiar, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. In other words, God's saying, listen, I'm going to put the anchor where I want it. I'm going to put the cornerstone where I want it. If you trust in me, you won't be in haste. That that means there won't be any reason for you to flee. You can't be disappointed. I will protect you. I will keep you safe. Trust me. Because I'm putting this cornerstone right where you need it. But still, of course, they didn't trust him. In fact, it got to such a point that he had to illustrate this in a very dramatic and I think probably, at least for this particular prophet, humanly speaking, painful way. And it was the prophet Hosea. You might remember his life. He was called by God to marry a woman named Gomer, which probably doesn't sound so pleasant right off the start. I suppose he's thinking, I'll never be able to buy a necklace that says Gomer. They just don't sell them. Uh, so he marries this woman. I shouldn't do that. I know it's a very serious part of this woman. Uh, he marries this woman, Gomer, and she either is at the time of marriage or becomes later, it's difficult to know from the passage, a prostitute. She's unfaithful. And he must still love her, though she wanders from him, though she's unfaithful to him, to such a degree that he actually redeems her, buys her back. And God, of course, is using this to illustrate his relationships with these rebellious people. But Gomer has three children, two of which are very important at this point for us. Because her second child, the daughter, is named Lo-Ramah, which means, and this is, this is the literal uh, translation, uh, this isn't what you'd cross-stitch and put over her bed, But what that word means, what her name means is this. One for whom there is no natural affection. Could you imagine that being your name? Could you imagine that being the name that your parents gave you? Every time they would call you, they would be reminding you, we have no natural affection for you. Her nickname was simply No Mercy. That is... If we see you in need, we're not compelled to help you. We're not compelled to give you mercy, even though we see you in need. It's as if you're apart from us. It's a foreigner to us. So we're not moved by your need. And thus, every time she would be called, 
the Israelites were to hear from God in that, I'm to give you no mercy. You're not people to receive mercy. And then a third child, a son, named Lo-Ami, which means no kin of mine. It's as if you're a child of unfaithfulness, a child of adultery. It's as if you're not my child. So every time this child would be called, it would be communicating, you're not my people. That would be the nickname, not my people. But then God in his graciousness in speaking to the Israelites says this in chapter 2 of Hosea in verse 23. He says, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. In other words, there's a day coming. And when this day comes, you see, it will be a time when mercy will be given to one who didn't know mercy before. When saying you're not making you my people will happen when before you weren't my people. And so there you have it. And there's a sense in which God is saying to the Israelites, I'm going to call together to me a people who don't know my mercy now and who aren't my people now. Thus, I'm going to include in all of this the Gentiles. Because I will have for myself a people who will declare my praises, a people who will proclaim my excellencies. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene. And of course, as Jesus comes on the scene, we know that he is the chosen one of God, the scripture says. He is the one in whom the Father is well pleased. In fact, Jesus tells a parable about himself. You can find it, if you wish, in Matthew, in chapter 22. <clears throat> Unless it's chapter 21. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 33. And I'll just paraphrase this parable. You've probably heard it. It's, it's a parable about a master who has a vineyard and he builds this vineyard up and in building this vineyard up, uh, he builds a wine press and he leaves his servants there to take care of this vineyard while he goes away. Well, in his absence, as sort of an absentee landlord at this point, he, he sends servants back in order to collect his rent, to collect what's due him as the owner. And so he sends three servants and he does, uh, they, they beat uh, and kill and, and, and stone these servants because they don't want to pay this rent. And so the master begins to think, well, I'll send my son. Because if I send my son, certainly they'll respect my son. I send servants, they may not respect the servants. But if I send my son, certainly they'll respect my son. And so they see the son coming. And when they see him coming, they begin to plot against him and say, let's kill him. And so they do. Now, if you know the gospel story, you get the point that Jesus is making. But notice how he interprets it, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In other words, if you reject this stone then it will be your demise. You trust in him, this very cornerstone, Jesus himself, and you'll not be disappointed. Peter must have been so taken by this that when he was preaching early on in the church, right after they had, uh, oops, right after they had healed the man by the temple who was without legs, the man who was begging, 
I must confess, I remember 15 years ago, I said it in, as I was preaching this text, that was the man who, I know, asked for alms and got legs. But um, they didn't laugh any harder than that either. But they healed him. And of course, when they did, they did it in the name of Jesus, which offended everybody. But of course, the guy who got new legs offended all the religious leaders because they saw this rival thing coming about again. And so they arrested Peter and John. And so in Peter giving his defense, he says this beginning in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other man, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says, this Jesus is the cornerstone. Now, as soon as they heard that, as well as the people who heard Jesus teaching, as soon as they heard that, their tumblers should have been going off in their mind all the way back to Isaiah. Oh, yes, this is the stone that was going to be set in such a way that all who believes in him would not be disappointed, would not be in haste, wouldn't have to flee, but could stay right here no matter what came their way because they would be protected and they would be provided for. That's this Jesus. And it's as if he's saying it's going to take this cornerstone and then build from it this great spiritual house, this great temple. See, the cornerstone was the most precious of all the stones. It was very labor-intensive to have a cornerstone. It had to be perfect. And there would be, on any huge building, a number of stones that had, would have been rejected by the contractor. Various ones would provide a stone and the contractor would look at it and say, no, that's not perfect. And they would reject it. But you see what's happening. The very Son of God comes. And people say, no, he's not the one. And they reject him. But he is the one. And God puts him, plants him, lays him. That we might come to him. That we might be drawn to him. That we might be called and attached and built from him, one upon the other, in the very dwelling place of God. Do you understand that we're the fulfillment of all of that? Notice what Peter says. As you come to him, a living stone. Again, let the tumblers go in your mind. As you come to him, a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. That's Jesus. You yourselves, like living stones, that is, with his very spirit in you, like him, like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to. See, God's in charge of this whole thing in some mysterious sense to us. 
that he's sovereign over it all. Those who come, those who don't. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, when I come to this point, as I did various times during the course of the week, I just had to stop and marvel and worship. It's amazing to me. This is us. All the way back to Isaiah. All the way back to Exodus. All the way back to Genesis. All the way back before the foundations of the world. And you know, and I don't have words to even put to that. I don't even know what to say that could express anything about how this, at least for me, makes me feel. Uh, I, I think Christians should live with this sort of holy buzz all the time. Because... of what God has done. And you see, here, we, we, we begin to understand our vocation, that is, why we were saved, why we were created, why we were born again, why it is that God has called us to be His. And you see, with our very lives, we're to live in such a way as to proclaim how excellent He is. That's what we're to do, minute by minute, day by day, week by week, year by year, throughout the course of our lifetime. That's who we are. That's our identity. You see, this new identity comes all from God. He's the one who's chosen us. He's the one that's called us to be a chosen race. He's the one who's given us access to Him through the cornerstone, through our Lord Jesus. He's the one who's called us to Himself, given us access to Him through Jesus. He's the one who has made us to be His very own possession. We belong to him. Once we weren't, now we are. It's his mercy by which we came to be his own possession. Once we weren't recipients of his mercy, and then he gave it to us when he called us to himself. It's amazing to me that the God of the universe would be merciful to us. And he says, you're my treasured possession. There's a great passage in, uh, about the life of David. And it's, it's, it's a passage in the life of David where he's about to, to, to commission Solomon, his son, to build the temple and tell him what he's going to do and all of that. And they're sort of doing a fundraiser for the temple to, to have it built. And, and David, who's the king, essentially says, I own everything. I'm the king. I could tax, I could get people to give stuff because, because really, ultimately, it all belongs to me as the king. But I'm going to give out of my treasured possession. Because you see, David had a stash. David had, had, had wealth that was just his, just to use as, at his own discretion as the king. He could use anybody else's. He could get any other wealth in the kingdom because he was the king. But he had this which was his own special treasured possession that he could use to delight himself. And God is saying, that's what you are to me. You're my treasured possession. As God, he owns everything. As God, everything is his but do you understand that when he calls us his treasured possession, what he's saying to us is, is that you're my, my little stash people. You, you, you're my ones that I've called just to delight me 
in this way. And the way that you delight me is to proclaim my excellencies. You're the ones who will know me. You're the ones who will be able to speak on my behalf. You'll be able to intercede for others even because you have access to me as this group of priests, all of you. He says, that's who you now are. You say, well, how do we do that? How is it that we proclaim his excellencies? Well, quite frankly, first this. First we need to know that he's excellent. First we need to have experienced the excellencies of God. And you see, for us to really be able to experience the excellencies of God, we really do have to acknowledge and come to grips with our own sin. And we talk about sin not to make people feel bad, but to make us understand who we are and what God has done. Because if there isn't that basic understanding of our own sinfulness, then God is not not as excellent as he really is. When Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, he saw the excellencies of God's holiness. And what that did was sent him to the ground. In fact, the scripture says that Isaiah said, I'm, I'm, I'm coming undone. Meaning that he felt like he was blowing up, that his body was not going to stay together because he saw this one who was a consuming fire. He saw this one in his perfect holiness and that revealed to Isaiah, who otherwise was a pretty good guy. You know? He was a good guy. He was on his way to the temple anyway. Well respected. But he saw into, by reflection, his own heart. And he saw his sinfulness. He saw the excellencies of God's holiness and judgment. God's excellencies, holiness and justice. But you see, if we stop there, then we're, we're just done for. We won't make any proclamation about God except stay away from him. But Isaiah was to come to know a greater excellency even than simply God's justice. But you remember that the Lord took a, with tongs a, a coal from the fire and brought it to his lips and cleansed him. And at that point on, Isaiah could speak of the excellencies of God because at that moment in time, he knew of God's kindness. He knew of God's grace. He knew of God's mercy. He knew of God's atoning grace that would come and bring forgiveness of sins to him. And thus you see, when we look at God and we see our Lord Jesus Christ and we see the excellencies of Christ in him, we marvel at his kindness and love for sending his own son. We see in him this wonderful cross that brings atoning sacrifice for our sins. And I never, ever cease to marvel in the greatness and the wisdom of God in the cross. Because you see, in saving us, God is faced with a huge dilemma. One that I could never even think of how we could overcome. Because how can a holy, just God acquit sinners who are guilty? I mean, how do you do that? How do you say your sins are forgiven, though we're guilty? How can a just God do that? Well, he does that through the cross. Because on the cross, his justice is exhausted because he pours out his wrath upon his son. And his love is demonstrated because he pours it out not on us, but on his son. And I, you know, at the very least, I think, that's really clever. But at the most, I fall on my face and I think, that was for us. 
So we see the excellencies of Christ. And we see the excellencies of God, the Holy Spirit, as he comes and miraculously changes us. And we know this newness of life, that once we were in darkness, and now we're in this marvelous light. You see, when you make that transition from darkness to light, and even in my case, I got saved as a little kid, so I don't have as much darkness that I experienced in that sense. And yet when I read the scripture, I understand darkness. And even now, as a believer, and I peer into my own heart, I understand darkness when I sin. And we know that we've moved from darkness into this marvelous light. And we stand before the creator of the universe trusting, attached to this cornerstone being built together from him. And it's amazing. And see, in order to proclaim these excellencies, you must know that. It must be yours. Else you'll simply be proclaiming excellencies that you've read about or, or heard about. And you just can't do that with, with a sincere heart. We need to know the excellencies of God's word. And the way that we learn the excellencies of God's word is to read it. And it has an impact and we trust it. We say, yes, it is alive. These promises really, really, really are true. Uh, This week, my wonderful wife uh, put verses together for our daughter who's at Camp Barnabas so that each day she can grab a hold of this passage, this verse. And and we've been praying all week. Don't tell her this. Uh, We've been praying all week that those verses bring her life. That at the end of the week, the end of this time, she can proclaim the excellencies of God's word by saying, yes, that's true. That sustained me. It's alive. You see, and you can't do that unless you experience it. There's a hymn that we sing sometimes. Uh, It's called, Tell Out My Soul. Uh, I sing it in my head when I'm on the treadmill. Uh, It's one of the things that gets me through. But over and over again, tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord. Tell out my soul the greatness of his word. Tell out my soul the greatness of his of His mercies. And as I'm going through that hymn in my head, as I'm running along trying to stay alive, um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm praying really, God, let me know your greatness so I can tell it out. So that I don't have to speak from what I've read, but from what I know in my own heart, in my own life. God, let me know the the greatness of your promises, the greatness of your word. Work that in me in such a way that when when I talk about that, it isn't something I've read, but something I know. And God, I think, says, yes, that's precisely what I want you to be praying, because that's why I've called you. I've actually called you out of darkness into light. I've actually chosen you. I've actually caused you to become a priest, access to me, part of a holy nation my treasured possession, so that you could do just that. You could proclaim how great I am. And so you see, here's that prayer, and he goes, yes, I like that. I'll answer that. I will let you know this. I will, I will inform your life with how great I am, so that you can indeed proclaim it, for that's why you've been called. And you see, we do this all the time. We're to do this all the time. As the gods of this world, so-called gods of this world, come before us, we're to stand before them and not proclaim their excellencies as Adam did in the garden when he proclaimed the excellencies of Satan over God. But we're to stand before them and we're to proclaim the excellencies of God. We stand before the God of the American dream which says all you need is more and to accumulate more. We proclaim the excellencies of God when we said, no, that's not it. Let me give. Let me say no to that opportunity because there's something more important than more. So you see, we proclaim the excellencies of God. We say, no, I'm going to trust in him. 
We proclaim the excellencies of God when we come into the face of the God of humanism that says we are the measure of all things. We're more important than everything else. It's what we think is best and how we determine how life ought to be and and what we think we ought to do. And we say, no, I'm going to follow God's word. His word is excellent. So don't tell me to divorce when God says no. Don't tell me to get an abortion when God says no. Don't tell me to, to lie when God says no. Even though it may feel right to do no. No, 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 no. I'll declare the excellencies of God when I stand in the face of universalism which says everyone will be saved. And we say, no, there's only one name given to men in heaven and earth by which we must be saved. That's it. There's no other way. I don't care what makes sense to you. I don't care what you think this is the truth. Thus, I'm going to declare the excellencies of God when I trust in him. We stand before the God of the moralist that says all you have to do is be a good person. When we say, yeah, that's right. But we're not good. And I see my own sin. And so I can't be a good person. I simply am not. Walk with me for the day and you'll agree with me. But I do need one who is good. And that one who is good is Jesus, this cornerstone, who's perfect, precious, chosen by God to represent me, to be my substitute, this Jesus. And I trust in him. We declare the excellencies of God every time temptations come our way. We say, no, I'm not going to lie. I'm going to speak the truth because that proclaims how great God is because this pleases him and I will follow him. When we have the temptation to envy, we say, no, 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 no. I'm going to be content because God satisfies me. And thus, I will proclaim his excellency in my contentment. When we're tempted to be angry, we say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to take revenge. I'm going to be patient because that declares the excellencies of God who is kind and patient to me. We declare the excellencies of God when we love each other, especially the least of these among us. We proclaim the excellencies of God and we show how great he is when we love others, when we participate in stuff that we do around here like Samaritan Saturdays and Love Lawrence Inc. and Focus and Camp Barnabas and missions trips and and all kinds of things. We declare his excellencies when we go to Bible study and we open the word of God and we put our hearts and minds there because we say your word is valuable and your excellencies are here in this. I will mind them with all of my strength because I know that here is life from God. So we declare his excellency when we listen to his word and we say there's no other word out there better than this. There's nothing else that can captivate my attention more than this. There's nothing else that I should follow other than this. We declare his excellencies when we worship. And we sit in here on a Sunday morning and we sing. And we listen to what's being sung. It's not a trifle, small thing that we do here. And then, of course, our very lives, our being together, built one upon the other, is declaring the excellency of God, the wisdom of God, Ephesians 3 says, to all the powers and principalities in heavenly places. Everything's watching. And here we are, proclaiming the excellencies of God. And the gods of this world, the powers and principalities fall one by one. Fifteen years ago, I asked this question of a group of people, none of whom are here. Because it was a small group of people. A group of people, I said, why is it 
that you think that God is calling you together to be a church? I could ask that question now since that afternoon they hired me. I could ask that question more inclusively now simply by saying, why is it, do you think, that God is calling us to be a church? And the answer to that question is this. I almost said simply this, but it isn't simply this. It's this. And we're to proclaim how great he is. There's no other reason for our existence. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, God, you, the very one who's chosen our Lord Jesus Christ and laid him as the cornerstone, the one into whom we are joined and built from, one upon the other, Our Father, you, the very one who has called us to be of the race called chosen, a priesthood that is royal, a possession that is your treasure, ones who were in darkness, now in light, ones who weren't your people, but now are, ones who hadn't received mercy, but now have, and all that, so that, we may declare how great you are, I pray. That we would do that. That we would be people who know your excellencies, how great you are, your justice, your kindness, your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your holiness, your compassion. That we know all of that through our Lord Jesus Christ and thus to you, Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, in every lifetime. That we may honestly, genuinely, from the heart, proclaim how great you are. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. I remind you that elders are available to pray, so please take advantage of that. The response uh, to the benediction is this one, Christ is our cornerstone, hallelujah. Now when you say that, what you're saying is that it's Jesus who's been established for us by God as the one and only sure and firm foundation, and it's in him that we believe and are thus never disappointed. And it's in him that we're built up together as the dwelling place of God. And it's through him that we offer this great sacrifice of praise. Christ is our cornerstone. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To our only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ, to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ is our cornerstone. Hallelujah.